0: Now, Edward R. Murrow's Hear It Now, with the voices of President Harry Truman, Senator Robert Taft, Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, Vice President Alvin W. Barkley, Speaker Sam Rayburn, Senator Paul Douglas, Prime Minister Clement Attlee, Happy Chandler, the city of Detroit, and more than 40 other people in the news, in the eighth performance of Hear It Now, presented tonight and every week at this time.
1: to pay more attention to empty stomachs before we can appeal to men's minds.
2: We felt a very decided concussion. Immediately the word was passed at the table, that's probably another atomic bomb. So uh, what did you do? uh, Well, I just kept on shooting crap.
0: Gives me pleasure to present you with a gavel made from ...wood that was used in the reconstruction of the White House in 1817... ...after it was burnt by the British. Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real and are presented as they were spoken in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. It is broadcast in the hope that the collection of these scraps of sound into a weekly recorded history may add another dimension to our understanding in the difficult days ahead. This series is edited and produced by Edward R. Murrow and Fred W. Friendly. But tonight, because of Mr. Morrow's laryngitis, his narration will be read by two of his newsroom colleagues, Douglas Edwards and Charles Collingwood.
3: The torrent of words on the great debate seemed to be ending, and perhaps it was because General Ike was home, and his personality and enthusiasm dominated Washington and much of the nation. But the new word of the week was an old one, and the word was cold, An old cold war and a new cold snap from New York to the Rockies. Frozen roads and frozen airfields and the first week of frozen prices. And Cyrus Ching, the nation's wage stabilizer, gave his theory on freezes.
4: When a freeze is issued, it lowers the temperature all around. In such a cold situation, it's advisable to keep your shirt on.
3: And at Washington's National Airport there was a conversation piece about the cold weather between the President of the United States and a citizen, small size. Our microphone was beside General Eisenhower's plane as he returned to Washington after his European inspection. The President was there to greet him. There were no speeches or ceremonies, but just by accident, our microphone picked up 12 seconds of conversation about the weather. Standing in the cold winds, watching Truman and Eisenhower and all the others was a four-year-old child, tearfully aware of a pair of cold hands, much more aware of them than of all the brass. Now, if you listen closely, you will hear that Missouri charm in action.
5: <laughs> so cold.
6: That's
1: a present,
0: Kind of chilly, isn't it? Put your gloves on, then your
1: hands
0: gloves on. gloves <laughs> off. Put your gloves on, then your hands on. cool. That's right. (laughs) The man
3: the commander-in-chief and his four-year-old friend went out to meet had a cold, too. But he proceeded immediately to the White House to brief the cabinet, and on Thursday, the top general of 12 countries, Dwight D. Eisenhower, spoke to an informal joint session of both houses. The report was not broadcast, and the networks were asked not to use recordings of it until after the general's radio address tonight. Eric Severide, chief of CBS's Washington Bureau, saw and heard the general and made this report for us. General Eisenhower has talked to the Congress,
2: and the place isn't quite the same, nor is the debate. In 45 minutes, he cut half the ground from under the isolationists or retreatists or garrison status or whatever you wish to call them. He showed himself to be a passionate evangelist, consummate diplomat, and in the best sense of the word, a master politician. He told them we must try to strengthen and preserve Europe because we have to to preserve ourselves. He did not argue very much from the arithmetic of Europe's national budgets, rates of conscription, and so on. He told Congress that this is mostly a moral problem, that we have got to get the thing off dead center in people's minds and hearts, get it on an ascending spiral. We make a move, Europe is encouraged to make one of her own, that encourages us to make another, and so on, so up and so forward in Eisenhower's mind. He has discovered no new facts, found no magical solution. He is not serving at the moment as a commander. He is trying to be the self-starter, the stick of dynamite to break the log jams. According to the private testimony of the French Prime Minister this week, he has broken the log jam in Europe. And judging by the first reaction to his speech to the congressman, he has probably
3: broken it here as well. But as any log roller can tell you, even when the jam is broken, the logs don't all go the same way. There were congressional critics of Eisenhower's remarks, but in the main, the reaction was favorable. This is what Senator Douglas, Democrat of Illinois, had to say.
6: General Eisenhower made a characteristically sincere and notable speech to the members of Congress this morning.
3: Senator James Kim, Republican, Missouri.
6: General Eisenhower left many important questions unanswered.
7: Congress will need much more information before it can intelligently decide whether an American army shall be sent to Western Europe.
3: Senator Edwin Johnson, Democrat, Colorado.
7: General Eisenhower,
2: of course, confined his statement today to generalities, which seemed to meet meet the general approval of everyone. Perhaps he had to stay a mile away from details... Anyway, that's what he
3: succeeded in doing. Senator Hubert Humphrey, Democrat, Minnesota.
8: I thank God that we have him. I thought his speech was a great testimonial to, do to the Democratic institutions that can produce not only a great general, but a great American.
3: Senator James Duff, Republican, Pennsylvania. I was impressed by General Eisenhower's report. It was able, sincere, and hopeful. Senator William Benton. Democrat,
0: Connecticut. General Eisenhower's speech of today struck a note of hope and faith, a high note of statesmanship, which cut through the cynicism and despair which is all too prevalent throughout the world today as it trembles in the face of the threat of war.
3: The general himself was still incontrovertibly the nation's hero. But his mission in Europe was and would continue to be the debate of the year, and very likely, and more importantly, the debate of 1952.
7: Ladies and gentlemen, Senator
1: Robert A. Taft of Ohio.
3: The senator from Ohio spoke several days before Eisenhower. Speaking to a Republican audience, he made it clear that his arguments were not against the general, but against the policies of the administration that had sent the general overseas.
6: Perhaps because the present administration has failed to understand the principles, they have lacked judgment in their day-to-day decisions. Perhaps they just lack judgment and good sense. <laughs> We must meet head-on, first, any truckling to communist sympathizers in the United States. Second, any any appeasement of Russia, which is likely to lead to more aggression. Third, any waste of our resources with the idea that we can buy the support of nations, who, of course, cannot be bought. Fourth, any dissipation of American resources, which will weaken the American people.
3: Senator Taft, Republican, and Speaker Sam Rayburn, Democrat, being the most influential members of different houses of Congress, never meet in debate on the floor. But this week, the speaker from Texas made it clear that he did not share Senator Taft's
0: views. Well, some people have said that if uh, the fighting was stopped in Korea... Uh, that there would be a drift back probably to isolationism and say, let's come back home. I don't, I don't think that. I don't want a war fought inside the shores of the United States. I'd like to have some friends in the world, and I think we're encouraging them now by the Eisenhower visit and other things to make themselves stronger so that they can stand alongside of us one of these days if uh, the bad time that we fear does come. And I think, that we've got to let them know that we're in this game with them and that we've got to send soldiers over there to give specific evidence of our sincerity in wanting to join with them to fight back communism. It was a big week for Sam Rayburn.
3: On Tuesday, he completed his 3,059th day as Speaker of the House, thus breaking the century-old record of Speaker Henry Clay of Kentucky. A fellow Kentuckian of Clay's, Vice President Barclay, paid tribute to the Texan who took the record away from Kentucky and to the bachelorhood of Sam Rayburn and spoke of the days of Monroe and Lafayette.
9: When General Lafayette was visiting in this country in 1824, President Monroe gave him a great reception in the White House here, out of which this gavel came. Everybody wanted to attend the reception, and everybody wanted to meet General Lafayette. Two men came to the reception together, unaccompanied. And when they were presented to Lafayette, he said to one of them, "Are you married?" He said, "Yes, I'm. I'm married. I have a wife and three children." "Ah, oh, happy man," said Lafayette. He said to the other one, "Are you married?" He said, no, I'm a bachelor. He says, oh, lucky dog. <laughs> <laughs> allow, allow a happy man to congratulate a lucky dog. <laughs>
3: and the president gave the speaker a gavel which dated from Madison's day.
10: Mr.
9: Speaker,
0: I have a very pleasant duty to perform this morning. This, I understand, is the day on which you become... Speaker for the longest time in the history of the Republic. Gives me pleasure to present you with a gavel made from wood that was used in the reconstruction of the White House in 1817 after it was burnt by the British.
3: But in this great democracy of ours, one doesn't have to break the record of Henry Clay or even be a congressman to own a gavel made of old White House timbers.
11: The American people are great souvenir collectors. We all have a special cupboard or catch-all crammed with objects that are a part of our own memories. To my knowledge, however, this is the first chance we Americans have had to acquire something so meaningful to us as Americans. That was
3: the voice of Representative Louis C. Rabo of Michigan, a member of the Commission on Renovation of the Executive Mansion. For the past two years, renovations have been going on at the White House, and timbers, bricks, and even nails have been carefully put aside so that the American people may eventually have them in their homes as bookends, paperweights, and even fireplaces. Congressman Rabo reads the inventory and price list of White House items which U.S. citizens may apply for.
11: Enough old pine to make a gavel. Processing costs two dollars. Enough old pine to make a cane, $2. Piece of old pine, old nail, small piece of stone, old copper wire suitable for plaque, $2. Small piece of old metal, $0.50. Small piece of old pine, $0.50. Piece of hand-split lath, about 12 inches long, $0.25. Small piece of stone, $0.50. One brick as nearly whole as practicable, one dollar. Enough brick for a fireplace, one hundred dollars. Enough stone for a fireplace, one hundred dollars. Two pieces of stone to make bookends, two dollars.
3: Those interested in owning these White House mementos may apply for same by writing to the Commission on
10: Renovation of the Executive Mansion, Fort Myer, Virginia. Only one to a customer. In London... In order to meet the new military needs, Prime Minister Attlee again was forced to raise British taxes and lower the food ration. Mr. Attlee went on to say,
8: That program will not be an easy one to carry out. I must tell you that it will not only demand sacrifice and effort from the country as a whole, but from individual people in varied walks of life.
10: And the British people heard that their new meat ration would now be the equivalent of nine cents worth a week. Our average is three dollars. Took it, scowled a little, and griped a bit. In monitoring the traditional man in the street, we found only one man who wasn't perturbed at all.
8: It leaves me quite unperturbed. There are adequate supplies of fruit, vegetables, and cereals. And after all, a meatless diet is both healthier and cheaper. Sir, do you mind if I ask your occupation? Not at all. I'm manager of London's largest vegetarian restaurant.
10: In the United States, the President today asked Congress for another $10 billions in taxes. He wants $4 billion of it to come from increased personal income taxes, $3 billions from corporations, and $3 billion from increased taxes on less essential consumer goods, the excise tax. If the Congress approves the President's request, and he's going to ask for more taxes later... This will mean that some people will pay higher taxes now than they did at any time during the last war. The White House today again stepped into the railroad strike. News Secretary Short said the president authorized him to say the strikers are directly injuring national security. Cannot be justified in preventing the flow of food and fuel for our people and supplies for our soldiers. In most cities, there was confusion and lethargy and lack of direction. And if this was to be the big freeze there were already gaping holes in the ice. We asked our CBS reporters in Oregon and New Jersey to find out how the price freeze had affected the buying habits of some of the people in their states. This is what we heard. The only thing that
6: I've noticed is that on last Monday evening, uh, going to the grocery store to purchase my favorite brand of coffee, the grocery clerk informed me that uh, it had been scheduled to go up two cents uh, a pound this week. But that due to the price control... The wholesaler instructed them that the price was to remain the same, so I guess I'm in two cents.
9: So far, uh, the price control hasn't affected
3: me at all, and since the prices have frozen at the highest point, I'm very much disappointed.
0: I haven't seen any particular effect of the price controls yet. Of course, all I hear is what I... happens around home, and up there, I'm just told the prices are up, up, up.
2: I suppose everybody's been expecting the price freeze, and that's why it hasn't startled or... Seemed very different to any of us. But I do think that prices should be rolled back a little bit
7: further. Well, I think the wages and stabilization plan is very good. And I think it will roll back the cost of living in the city of Portland.
0: I expected great things from price controls and find that nothing happened to alleviate shopping problems. I think I'll just wait a few months to see what will happen.
10: This week, Seoul again was back in the news. Matt Ridgway's resilient 8th Army had the ball again and was less than 8 miles from the Korean capital.
8: Uh, Roger, uh,
7: we'll probably be tied up for about 30 minutes here with this artillery, and I don't
6: want you to get caught in this trajectory anywhere. Over. All uh,
8: right, Roger. What is the nature this of this target? This is a conversation Over.
10: near a road junction at Sioux One. The talk back of the shortwave communications between an American artillery battery, an observation post, and a tank. The tank and the artillery battery are both zeroing in on an enemy position.
7: Uh, artillery going to fire Victor Tehr the vicinity of 0833. Uh, warning to you. Uh,
10: the careful, detailing voice at the forward position is helping the guns and the tanks get T.O.T., tight on target, without letting the tank get too close to the target.
7: Listen. Artillery firing Victor Tear. Uh that is uh T O T stuff. You know what I mean?
1: All right, roger on the
7: stand. Uh request two volleys, repeat fire for effect, Over. Uh, this is uh eight uh, request two volleys, repeat fire for effect,
1: over
8: The way around complete
10: weight. Along with the tanks, the infantry moved forward almost inch by inch. U.S., French, Turkish, and Puerto Rican foot soldiers winning ground the hard way, bayonets and hand grenades and rifle butts, flushing the enemy out of his entrenched holes. Last week, one Jew. This week, Su one, and a new line five miles north. This time the UN advance was slow but sure. No pockets of lurking North Koreans or Chinese were allowed to remain. On the strategic front, B-29s hammered away at enemy supply dumps at Panyang, And on the west coast, the battleship Missouri was back in action, crippling the port of Kosang, 45 miles north of the 38th parallel. Landing craft boats were put down from other vessels and skirted the harbor, but no landings were attempted. One of the little workhorses of the campaign has been the Mosquito, not the fast British fighter-bomber of the last war, but a small air-ground support plane which we've been using to scout enemy positions and zero in our attacks both by air, artillery, and warship. It's a rough war, the Mosquito Boys fight, and last week two of them were caught well behind enemy lines when their plane was hit, crashed, and burned. An armada of Air Force planes rendezvoused over them until a helicopter could go in after them. Here a Captain Kelly and Lieutenant Sam Marshall tell of their ordeal on a Korean
7: hillside. Uh, We'd gotten up about 1,200 feet when uh, we got one big bad hit in the left uh, main tank and from that time on it was the fourth of July fireworks. Looked kinda like a big Zippo lighter out there for a while there. <laughs> <laughs> it sure did. There were flames, uh in Captain Kelly's cockpit. I could see the flames coming around uh him and we tried to open the canopy and every time we did it just stuck the fire in and We were both coughing pretty badly, and Captain Kelly made a beautiful landing. One thing that was worrying me was that we had a belly tank that was also burning, and Captain Kelly uh, had been unable to jettison that belly tank due to the fire. And just before we bellied in, well, he touched down and scraped off the belly tank. And I think that probably was... uh, real reason why we were able to abandon the aircraft after we bellied in uh, with neither one of us getting severe burns, because that belly tank would have just come right up in my lap, I know that, if you hadn't washed it off the airplane.
8: I think we were just lucky they built a hill on (laughs) there about that
7: time. (laughs) Well, from there on, it was kind of confused for a while. Yeah, and uh, Captain Kelly had some face and hand burns, and we had our escape and evasion kit Gave the captain a little first aid there on a bank and started looking for some of our airplanes to round robin over us. And uh, both of us uh, realized about the same time that some guys were shooting at us. And then we hugged a little creek bank and got down out of sight. And over on a ridge about 350 or 400 yards away, well, we could see this character sitting up there with a, a rifle. And he was the first one that we saw. And then he started to come down this hill to go get us, and both of our rifles had been burned up in the airplane. We couldn't get them, and we uh, had a 45. and so from that time on, it was a stalking game, trying to uh, get this joker with a rifle in a position to where we could kill him with a 45, and then we'd have a rifle. And we figured we could make it out all right. Kind of hide-and-go-seek around that place. That's the first time I ever did any swimming on the ice. <laughs> we went in and out of those gullies around there like a couple of track stars with those flying
4: boots on. I didn't know it could be done.
7: We sure did, and it was certainly a comfort to me to see the effort, that, the cover that was put over So We had a flight of 51s. Uh, we had, I think, a total of six Navy Corsairs. We had two flights of F-80s. And uh, then when the rescue aircraft came to pick us up, well, uh, the sky just seemed to me like it was uh, alive with airplanes. I I was, I guess, a little bit in the daze by that time, and uh, about the only thing I could see was that rescue aircraft that was going to come get the captain and myself away from that rice paddy. The... uh thing that I remember after the horn blowing and running around playing hide-and-go-seek was when you said 12 o'clock high, and I looked up and saw the most beautiful airplane the Air Force has got. <laughs> that really looked good to me, too. <laughs> that helicopter is just the prettiest thing there is, I'll tell you.
10: It is almost 8,000 miles from the 38th parallel to the Lake Success Auditorium on the 42nd parallel, where Warren Austin, almost like a Senate majority leader struggling against a filibuster... Was finally able to bring the charges against Red China to a vote.
9: We shall now pass
2: on to vote on the proposal as a whole with the amendments which were approved. Uh, there will be a roll call vote in accordance with the request of
8: the representative of Bolivia. Turkey? Yes. Ukraine? No. Union of South Africa? Yes. Union of Soviet Socialist Republics? No. United Kingdom? Yes.
0: United States. Yes. Uruguay. See. Si. By a vote
10: of 44 to 7, the political committee of the General Assembly, and then the full assembly itself, approved a resolution naming China the aggressor in Korea. Today, China rejected the resolution, angrily condemned both the United States and the United Nations, threatened to fight to the end against what's called American designs. Meanwhile, the U.S. government and the American people were going to have to make another kind of decision. What were we going to do about India? Sir Benegal Rao of India, who had led the ceasefire resolutions, had voted against branding China an aggressor.
0: I only hope members will ponder carefully what the position will be. No early ceasefire, every problem in the Far East unsolved the atmosphere for successful negotiations vitiated, the tension in the Far East perpetuated. We should like to have it on record that when the world was marching, in our view that is to say, marching towards disaster, we, most of the Asian powers, did all that we could to halt the march. The United States
10: was going to have to decide how it would behave toward friendly nations which occasionally voted against us in the United Nations. And India was a problem that had to be decided quickly. India was in trouble at home. Millions will die in the next six months if they don't get food. Madam Pandit, the Indian ambassador to Washington and sister of Nehru, says India isn't asking for charity. She's bought some American grain, is anxious to buy more on credit.
0: India faces a terrible threat of famine this year due to a series of natural disasters which have followed each other in quick succession in several parts of the country. Our food deficit is estimated at 6 million tons. By straining our resources to the utmost, we have been able to buy 4 million tons of grain from those parts of the world where supplies were available. But even so, we shall be unable to provide our people with a minimum ration of 900 calories. A ration which, according to American standards, is starvation diet.
10: We have the wheat India needs, can supply it from our surplus alone. But some senators in Washington saw no reason for helping in India, which this week voted against us on the all-important Chinese problem... There are those on both sides of the aisle who say we must send the wheat. Ives and Alexander Smith among the Republicans, Lehman and Humphrey among the Democrats. And Eleanor Roosevelt says it's a matter of conscience, a chance to prove that we do not play politics with starving people. So I hope that we will make an effort to understand
8: the effort that India is now making to bring some peaceful solution to the very difficult, questions that
10: all of us face together in the Far East. And I hope that
0: this difficulty will not endanger the fact that we are being asked to do what we have done many times before,
10: help the people of India, and in this case, keep them from starvation. It would seem to me impossible that
8: the people of the United States who have always been generous and always friendly, should not meet this appeal.
10: In times of disaster, we Americans have spent billions to help the stricken throughout the world. That is our tradition and certainly a part of our strength. The problem of wheat for India concerns not what we can get Benegal Rao to do at Lake Success, but what we as human beings have always tried to do. We have to confirm not the worst things our enemies say about us, but the best things we've always believed about ourselves. Listen to Senator Wayne Morse, Republican from Oregon, in St. Louis three nights ago, on the mind and stomach of man.
1: Do you think we've done a very good job of putting into practice that basic democratic religious principle that we are our brother's keeper? When in recent years in this country, we have emptied into empty government bins thousands upon thousands of tons of American food, knowing that 20 to 60 percent of it would be wasted before it ever came out of those bins, when we ought to have been emptying it into empty stomachs in Asia in exchange for goodwill, if certain forces didn't want us to exchange it for strategic materials as we had an opportunity to do on more than one occasion, we've got to pay more attention to empty stomachs before we can appeal to men's minds.
0: You are listening to Hear It Now, CBS's weekly document for ear. Based on the week's news and its importance to the American people. The program continues immediately after this pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Program 8 on Hear It Now, a full-hour review of the week's news, told in the actual recorded voices of the men and women who made the news. Hear It Now is edited by the distinguished news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. Because of his laryngitis, his narration is done tonight by Douglas Edwards and Charles Collingwood. Exactly one year ago this week, the president
10: announced that we were going to attempt to build a hydrogen bomb. This week, the H-bomb was still part of the most secret set of blueprints in history, while the archaic old atom bomb was making news all over the place. Las Vegas, Nevada, normally a garish little desert metropolis of roulette wheels, divorce apparatus, and terraced hotels, was virtually sitting on the edge of Almogordo Model 1951. Several weeks ago, the Atomic Energy Commission condemned a vast tract of land north and west of Las Vegas. Four times this week, they tested new atomic weapons at this new proving ground, and it actually made a few people look up from their gaming tables for a few minutes. Our CBS station in Las Vegas, KLAS, had a recording machine running in its transmitter tower when one of the blasts went off. This is how it sounded, 45 miles away from zero. The A-bomb wasn't the only thing booming in Nevada. This week, business was, too. The people of Las Vegas differed in their reactions to the blast. Some were terrified, others unconcerned. One man slept through it all, but his dog didn't.
9: I didn't hear it, but the dog heard it and jumped in bed with us, between me and the wife. I, I thought maybe that bomb come off a little closer than it was supposed to. The wife got scared to death,
7: and she says, uh, let's save a little money and get out of here. It's too close to that bomb. I was driving along about three or four miles south of Gene, Nevada, and I knew all of a sudden, i ready to pass the truck, and this explosion or flash, as you, whatever you'd want to call it, happened. And I thought the truck blew up in front of me. It kind of scared me a little bit. And then a couple of minutes later, it seemed like that there was two more small explosions right behind it.
8: It went up, and then it helped. Seemed like for about two seconds, and then just died down gradually.
2: I was asleep, sound asleep, and it frightened me. I thought it was an earthquake.
6: Oh, I wondered what happened. I thought maybe the fuse had blown out, Wilbur Clark's or something. At first, that was uh,
8: kind of like uh, an old trolley, the old trolley lines when they used to short out, and you'd get a big blue-white flash.
6: All of a sudden, we heard the snow as it's ruined. And it was three times. Each time it got a little louder, and the last blast was real loud, the third blast.
2: I was gambling in the uh, in the gambling rooms here at the uh-huh. Desert Inn. We felt a, uh, a very decided uh, concussion, and uh, immediately the word was passed at the table, that's probably another explosion of the atomic bomb, similar to yesterday. I see. So uh, what did you do? Uh... Well, I just kept on shooting crap.
10: Nevada, 1951. This week, Harry Truman gave some advice. Young men should have something to look forward to. That's the trouble with being president. There's no future in it. Cleveland pitcher Bob Feller put his signature to a $45,000 contract. Elizabeth Taylor got a divorce from Nicky Hilton. And Barbara Stanwyck, after 11 years of married life, filed her suit for divorce against Robert Taylor. The youngsters in Minneapolis had a treat... A janitor strike closed the public school. Some courses were given over the local TV station. The National League was 75 years old today, and on this anniversary, baseball's controversial commissioner had some thoughts as he spoke here in New York. For
2: 75 years, the National League has helped grow with the people of this republic, and it's my job to do everything I can because of your public, your confidence in the game of baseball to protect its integrity. And thank God, during the last 30 years when we've had a baseball commissioner, no incident has happened in American baseball to cause you to lose faith and confidence in it. And as long as you believe in it, and as long as it's honest and straight, we have nothing to fear. God bless you all. We're facing troublous times, and I sincerely hope that this resource, which means so much to the American people, will never be taken from us.
10: Thank you so much, and God bless you all. French police looking for stowaways aboard a ship opened a packing crate marked Automobile Fragile. Inside, they found an automobile and a stowaway sitting in the driver's seat had been there for 30 days. The British Admiralty turned down a request to allow sailors to use automatic machines to clean decks. An American Airlines pilot, Charles Blair Jr., set a new record for the 3,500-mile trip from New York to London. He flew a jet fighter across the Atlantic in 7 hours, 48 minutes. A Birmingham, Alabama woman paid a $25 fine after admitting that she fired 70 bullets into a picture of her husband hanging on the wall. She said she was mad at him. Two thefts this week. Someone stole a bass fiddle from New York's Carnegie Hall. And in Chicago, burglars broke into a house, stole the watchdog. And in Philadelphia, religion was as near as your telephone. For a long time now, the telephone has given service above and beyond the purposes for which Alexander Graham Bell invented it. In most communities, a nickel or of late a dime and a dial to a given number will bring you anything from the weather to the time to the baseball scores.
7: When you hear the signal, the time will be 3.15 and one quarter,
6: end of eight innings, Yankees one, Phillies nothing.
10: But in Philadelphia this week, if you dial Market 71577, the friendly voice of Mrs. Hall answers and you hear, Hello?
7: Yes, I do have a message for you. What shall it profit a man
11: if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, I'm glad you called. Be glad to have you call again. Bye.
4: We have
10: consulted several clergymen of three faiths on this device and are told that telephone scriptures, like religion by television, are not the equivalent of a visit to church. In Frankfurt, Germany this week,
3: 21 Nazi war criminals, including Alfred Krupp of the Krupp Munition Works, were given a last-minute reprieve, many of them from the gallows, by General Thomas T. Handy and John McCloy, U.S. Commissioner in Germany. These were 21 of the war criminals sentenced at Nuremberg. Yesterday, when Brigadier General Telford Taylor, who led the prosecution of these men at Nuremberg, heard the news of their release, he stated that we were playing right
5: into Moscow's hands. The news dispatches from Germany about the Nuremberg war criminals uh, don't give us the full story of what has been done or why it has been done. But we know that Alfred Krupp and all the other managers of the Krupp Steel and Munitions Empire are to be released from prison immediately. The crook managers were convicted of wanton and deliberate crimes, including the brutal mistreatment of thousands of men and women who were carried off from their native countries to forced labor in the crook plants. They were defended by able lawyers and were tried by a court of three experienced American judges from the appellate courts of Connecticut, Tennessee, and Washington. I know of no justification for the release of all these convicted criminals. The freeing of the Krupp managers and the restoration of Alfred Krupp's interests in the Krupp plants will, in my judgment, do grave harm to American efforts to strengthen Europe against the menace of communism. We have handed the Russians a propaganda weapon of great value, which they will exploit to the full. We have sown distrust of America among the peoples of both Western and Eastern Europe. If this action is an effort to win favor among Germans, it is a losing game, which will weaken, not strengthen our position in Germany.
3: On last week's Hear It Now, you heard David E. Lilienthal, former head of the Atomic Energy Commission, say, Let no Russian leader,
5: and no rattled American for that matter, underestimate the fabulous productive capacity of this country. The ability of this country to produce, if the need be great enough, is almost beyond limit. The next portion of tonight's program is a
3: report on this fabulous productive capacity of our republic, or at least a quarter of it. As Ed Murrow said on the first of these programs eight weeks ago, we shall from time to time make reports for ear on the progress of America as it mobilizes for defense and the possibility of war. This, then, is a report on Detroit. The heart of America's industrial might, which in World War II produced 26% of the total war materials. CBS's veteran reporter Bill Downs has just spent the last week in Detroit listening to and recording the sounds and the voices and the fury of Hell on Wheels. This is Bill Downs' report on Detroit,
12: Michigan, 1951. Edgar A. Guest, the poet lives in Detroit, and once said this about the city that grew too fast. A city and a woman are alike in one respect, he said. They can't grow big and stay beautiful. Detroit is a sprawling, uneven, overwhelming city of about two million people, and most of them work in the motor industry. At closing time, the 144 square miles of this great city on the Detroit River seem to expand as they swallow the masses of men and women streaming from the factories. The whistles atop the gaunt, dark smokestacks shriek out their call to change shifts. Three times a day, every eight hours, the factories consume and eject their daily armies of auto workers. This is the Detroit tank arsenal. They talk a different language, technical phrases. To most of us, almost as weird as a tobacco auctioneer's.
7: Well, this power plant uh, is rated at 800, 810 horsepower. The power is transmitted through what we term a cross-drive transmission. That transmission is a combination of a fluid torque converter and a mechanical ...gear system that transmits the power uh, through both mechanical and hydraulic paths.
12: That tank assembly line is at the Detroit Arsenal, originally operated by Chrysler. The Army took it over, and it's the only plant actually turning out tanks now. But the new orders are beginning to come in, and conversion is getting underway. As radio station WJR's news director, Jack White, reported it,
6: There's something of an atmosphere of a maternity ward evident in this city these days. Detroit was the birthplace of masses of war material during the last war. And with more than $3 billion worth of defense contracts already granted here, the city is expectant again. But there's a gestation period of many months. Between the time an automotive company signs a contract with the government and a tank, a bullet, or a weapons carrier is born,
12: in the army they say, hurry up and wait. Right now it's a process of making haste slowly. In this emergency, as in the last one, Detroit is able to make the switchover from peace to wartime production because of its enormous productive capacity developed in manufacturing automobiles for a nation that virtually lives on wheels. The sound you hear now is on an assembly line at one of the General Motors factories, which, along with Ford, Chrysler, Packard, Nash, Kaiser, and the others... Last year produced more than 30,000 cars, trucks, and buses every day. That means that every three seconds, every 24-hour day, a new vehicle came off the thousands of miles of conveyors, which are the tributaries tributaries of America's fast-moving industrial stream. 30,000 vehicles a day, which means every month enough cars and trucks to reach bumper to bumper from Washington, D.C. to the Rocky Mountains. That's an overhead conveyor system, nearly eight miles of conveyors in one factory, winding through the building. Car bodies automatically weave and crisscross in a bewildering maze of conveyors without apparent human direction. This is the Goliath of American industry, which in World War II produced more than 50,000 tanks, 27,000 completed aircraft, many of them heavy bombers, and more than 5 million guns. <laughs> Detroit, once a log fortress, a distant outpost on the American frontier, once an uninspired, unnoticed small town, now Detroit, next to the atom bomb, is free man's most important military asset. It consumes four-fifths of America's rubber imports, three-fifths of the plate glass, three-fifths of the upholstery leather, one-fifth of our tin and lead, one-seventh of our rolled steel, and one-eighth of our copper. But Detroit is more than all this, more than the statistics and conveyor belts and blast ovens and punch presses. Detroit also is people. Men like Walter F. Osborne, father of seven, who sits in a wheelchair all day and sets gaskets for air conditioning ducts on tanks. He and his 9th Division opened the way for General Patton at San Lowe. Now he helps make... Patton tanks.
6: Well, my name's Waller F. Osborne. I live in Saint Clair Shores. I went through the Battle of Saint Lo. Uh, Saint Lowe fell on the twenty sixth and I got hit the twenty sixth. Uh twenty fifth Saint Lowe fell and I got hit the twenty sixth. I believe it's it's rougher now than it was when we was over in France. I it's the way I feel about it, I wish I could be over there to help the boys out again. We just as well finished the job now that we're started. It's the way I feel, right? I believe that's what should have been done in the first place. Now that we're started, we got a lot sunk in it. It'll probably cost us a lot more. but I think that we just as well get it straightened out now as to do it later on. If it has to be, it has to be.
12: Then you walk down past the hiring line at the DeSoto plant. It's early in the morning and one above zero. Then you go into the hiring hall.
8: All you men out there for 8.15 physicals, Have your birth certificate and Social Security ready when we call you to the window. You veterans have your uh, discharge papers handy. Okay, you take this here down to window number nine, and the girl will process you through and send you down for physical.
12: Okay, on. From DeSoto, you take a cab over to the General Motors building and ask the head of Chevrolet what the threat of war means to him and his company. His name is Thomas H. Keating.
4: Once again, the American people find their priceless heritage of freedom and liberty endangered by the threat of war. Our government has embarked upon a program of mobilization of resources which will require the participation of all industry, large and small. Since the gradual cutback of civilian goods begun at the start of this year, the program has been accelerated in the past 30 days, ...to a far greater degree than shows on the surface. Chevrolet stands ready to do its full part in the defense program. These projects will receive the first call on all of the resources of our organization. Just as was the case during World War II... ...when General Motors was the largest producer of material for the armed services.
12: From Chevrolet, you go up to the competition... You make a pilgrimage to Greenfield Village a few miles from Dearborn. You see the first Model T, the four-cylinder father of the Patton tank. Then you ask a group of CIO workers what they're thinking about. Well, I think
9: that we could mobilize a lot faster than we are.
8: We should be having war work in order to do more for our country and show the
6: country that we're out there with them.
7: Now here at Rouge, we have no work oh. at all yet.
10: No war work at all. The situation is critical as far as housing is concerned. Detroit is overrun with war workers coming in. It's going to make it that much more critical.
2: Well, being that there's a a lot of women coming back in the industry, there's a rumor
5: around that if your sweater is loose, watch out for the machine, and if your sweater is tight, well, then watch out for the machinist.
2: <laughs>
5: I think yeah,
6: the wages that the uh, workers are receiving today in the plants and all over the country are are a fair
8: wage. But I think that the prices, the food prices, are, are up too high.
7: We can keep America free if we do the job back home.
10: Well, I think we're all in this war together. That is, the free countries. And I think the European countries should unite with the United States
5: and fight this battle together.
12: You seek out one of the women on the production line at another factory. A young Polish girl named Maria Suzodny. She works on a drilling machine. She likes her work, and she says...
7: I've been working this kind of a job since I was 17 year old and got it to Detroit Arsenal August the 25th and I started to work and I was the first one in here kind of shy and everything when they were teasing me about it especially Mr. Kruger in the office uh, said to me well you're the first female and I wouldn't uh, believe them and so the girls in the office wouldn't believe me at that neither that I was the first woman to enter as a machine helper. I feel kind of bad about all the things going on because one of our friends from the neighbor is missing. I think his name is Hill. And uh, another fellow was wounded by name Frank Palachik. And there's a lot of boys from the neighbor that are going, and I feel kind of bad about it.
12: You wonder what the price and wage freeze means to Detroit. You go back downtown to the Book Tower building, stop by the new office with the freshly painted door, and ask Philip A. Hart the new price stabilizer, how's the new job?
7: I think this is one of those jobs nobody runs for, but you get it by default. Now, I think that uh, unpleasant as the chore may be, it's like a lot of other things that all the people are going to have to do, and uh, after a day here, uh, I'm convinced that uh, when I was in the infantry, life wasn't half bad.
12: Everybody says that Detroit is a city of differences, that that's what makes it throb with greatness. You stop by the Board of Commerce and ask Harvey Camel what he thinks of defense production and the way things are going in Washington. He leaves no doubt as to how he feels.
6: Well, uh, we're stumbling into the war effort. National business leadership is trying to reform Washington. There's an urge to eliminate political obstacles to production and change time-worn habits that have been bungling and extravagant in both money and lives. Industrial executives pray that C.E. Wilson, that's Defense Order Wilson, will not be Hillmanized. One of Mr. Wilson's difficulties will be to induce experienced industrialists to share his responsibility because of the dismaying example set by the ruthless treatment suffered by our own William S. Knudsen. Broadly, the apprehension of potential manufacturers of war materials is based upon experiences within this generation suffered during two world wars— They feel that the time has passed now for door-handle polishers to become leaders of the Queen's Navy. They insist that if clumsy Pentagon practices are not shucked immediately, America's
12: much-vaunted and over-abused liberties will be gone for all foreseeable time. What about the other side? This was a spokesman for business, and there's plenty of big business here. How about a spokesman for labor? There's big labor here, too. So you make a date with Walter Ruther, the red-haired leader of the United Auto Workers. He leaves no doubt either.
8: Free labor outproduced slave labor in World War Two, and we can mobilize voluntarily again to resist and defeat the forces of communist aggression. We do insist, however, that the cost of defending freedom must be shared fairly, and that the wealthy, who already have more than they need must not be permitted to profiteer and capitalize on our national emergency. Everyone must tighten their economic belts together. To effectively fight communism abroad, we must effectively fight inflation at home. Rolling back the price of Cadillacs is of little importance to the average American family. The cost of food, clothing, and other necessities of life must be rolled back. We in the UAW-CIO are determined to fight communist aggression on the battlefronts and equally to fight inflation and profiteering on the home front.
12: You ride down Woodward Avenue to the city hall. Ask if you can see the mayor of this bustling, bursting city. Mayor Albert E. Kobo says Detroit stands ready.
0: Detroit has always done a tremendous job when called upon by the nation. I have lived here all my life and have seen this city grow into greatness. It has survived wars and depressions and has earned the right to be called dynamic. Detroit has done its full part in past emergencies, is doing it now, and you may be sure it will continue to do
12: so. No one quite mentions it, but you know there are certain things that worry both the big wheels and just the plain people in Detroit, too. They remember the problems of the last war, the 1943 race riots, when the city, swollen to many times its normal size with migratory workers, burst forth one night into a disaster. The scars are still there. The migratory workers are coming back again now, and it presents problems. You go down to the terminal on Washington Boulevard, where the night buses arrive from the south. Ask a recent arrival how the job hunting is coming.
7: My name's L Scholarhue. I'm
0: from Logan, West Virginia. Well, I couldn't get no work down home, and I decided to come up here. I'm a disabled veteran, making county hard on me. I've been several places, and they are not our hiring,
7: and
0: I'm going to stick it out with them and try to find a job.
7: Everybody tells me there's plenty of work up here, and after I got
0: up here, I found it kind of complicated. I've been to Kaiser and Frasers. I've been over to King Haley's, and I've been to Garwood's, and... Hudson Wayne, I'm going to try Chevrolet, Dodge, and places tomorrow. Right now, I'm pretty well busting, because it costs money to live in a town like Detroit.
12: At the State Unemployment Bureau, they tell you there will be a layoff as the big plants change over to war production. But they all say the orders are terrific already. Not only conversion, but new plants and a new Detroit blossoming out far beyond the boundaries of Michigan. A Detroit in Delaware, where Chrysler will build tanks. A Detroit on the Missouri in Kansas, where GM will make jet engines. You ask a CBS reporter in Kansas City to go out to the new factory.
1: We are now in the process of converting to producing the Republic Thunderjet F-84 fighter for the United States Air Forces. I'd like to tell you a little bit about our conversion plans. There's a great deal, of course, to do. First, the engineering. Engineering. Then the plant layout, procuring materials, supplies, and experienced manpower. Then finally, the production necessary to fulfill the requirements of the armed forces.
12: You realize that Detroit is practically a nation within a nation. That Detroit is a hub and a capital with 113 plants in 77 cities in 24 of emergency. Detroit's millionaires are men who can fix carburetors... Or speak on the evils of the New Deal. Her workers are people with names like Zernak, O'Malley, Goldberg, Romano, and Papalopoulos. They can fix carburetors or give you a lecture on the benefits of the escalator clause in labor contracts. It's a city where basic sociological conflicts between the Negro and the hillbilly auto worker constantly threaten a repetition of the wartime race riots, but where a gallant old newspaper reporter named Eddie Guest can write a poem about it taking a heap of living to make a house a home. But most important, Detroit is a city upon which this country and the free nations of the world must depend. Depend for the weapons which will make democracy strong. Depend for leadership in production and design and what has become known as know-how. Detroit has more of that than any city in the world. F.O.B. Detroit. Detroit.
0: have just heard Program 8 in the new CBS series, Hear It Now, a weekly review of the news told in the actual recorded voices of history in the making. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Murrow and Fred W. Friendly, and a CBS staff which includes Joseph Worshmer, Jesse Sousmer, and John Aaron. Tonight, in Mr. Morrow's absence, the narration was read by Charles Collingwood and Douglas Edwards. The report on Detroit was done by Bill Downs with the active assistance of the news department of radio station WJR in Detroit. Other portions of tonight's broadcast originated in New York City at WTOP, Washington, WAGA, Atlanta, WCAU, Philadelphia, WDAE, Tampa, Florida, KMBC, Kansas City. KFH, Wichita, WCCO, Minneapolis, KLAS, Las Vegas, KNX, Los Angeles, KCBS, San Francisco, KOIN, Portland, Oregon, KMOX, in St. Louis. Combat reports were done in the field by CBS correspondents George Herman and John Jefferson and by Armed Forces Radio teams. Special acknowledgement is made to the British Broadcasting Corporation and to United Nations Radio. Since our early sequence on the White House, we've had so many requests to repeat the address of where you can write to get application blanks for mementos from the White House that we now repeat the address. Write to the Commission on the Renovation of the Executive Mansion, Fort Myer, Virginia. Remember only one to a customer. tie speaking, this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.